Welcome to Blockchain Recorded, the podcast for the tech curious, where we talk about anything and everything related to the exponentially evolving crypto, blockchain, and Web 3.0 space. Our mission is simple, to share knowledge, facilitate discourse, and help evolve education in blockchain fundamentals, decentralization solutions, and relevant use cases for today's digital economy. We at Blockchain Recorded are not registered investment advisors and do not deal with financial or trading token elements, nor offer any licensed financial services. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, while the opinions of all parties involved are their own. I'm your host, Nina Tserar, and now let's talk blockchain. Before we begin, this podcast is possible by our sponsor at Ambire. The Ambire wallet is one of the top products in crypto asset management. It is the first open source, non-custodial smart wallet that delivers exceptional user experience combined with solid security. With Ambire wallet, users can easily navigate the world of Web3. It comes packed with features like built-in swaps, cross-chain bridges, integrated earning opportunities, and more. In addition, Ambire offers things like human-readable transaction parsing, eliminating ERC-20 approvals and front-running protection. The smart wallet uses gas abstractions that allow for unique features like paying for gas with stable coins. Users can batch multiple transactions to save time and gas fees. The wallet also supports NFTs and allows you to connect to any dApp via Wallet Connect. You can use it with an email and password or add hardware wallets or hot wallets as signers to upgrade your security. And the best part? Ambire speaks human. The UI is friendly and informative, ensuring you understand what you're doing and eliminating risks for mistakes. Ambire wallet users are currently eligible for continuous wallet token rewards. To learn more and get your Ambire account today, visit www.ambire.com. That is A-M-B-I-R-E.com. So today with us, we have Nevin Freeman. He's the co-founder and CEO of Reserve, where he oversees strategy, legal, and team coordination. Nevin is an entrepreneur who has co-founded three companies. His purpose is to solve the coordination problems that are stopping humanity from achieving its potential. And he's particularly concerned about averting the long-term risks posed to by the development of artificial intelligence. Today, we will talk a lot about stable currencies, first painting the macro fiat stability picture, and then dive into stable cryptocurrencies, reserve, and its protocol. So on that note, Nevin, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nice to meet you, Nina. I have been following you for some time now, uh, actually, and the work you do is... I think is remarkable. Um, you give crypto a meaningful humanitarian and much needed use case. That's actually really admirable. Yeah. I mean, the thing that we're trying to do is kind of just like the original idea of cryptocurrency, right? Is, is sort mm -hmm. of uh, creating a form of money that is not dependent on governments um, and uh, that's free and open and accessible to anybody. So in a, in a sense, you know, the idea behind it isn't very inventive at all, but we've had to come up with a, a bunch of ideas for how to try to make that work in practice. Right. Um, well, let's start with, uh, I know you've, you've spoken on many podcasts and, and many talks, and I've, I've actually listened to quite a few of them, but uh, let's start with in terms of what are your beginnings and how did you end up in the crypto space? As in, did you actually have like a, an aha moment? 
Yeah, um, it's it's a bit of a twisty road. I mean, when I was when I was younger, uh, from a very young age, I sort of had the belief that environmental issues were the only really big issues on the planet. Like everything seemed fine in my world growing up. And I was like, okay, we just have to solve global warming, and then everything will be great. And <laughs> by the time I was like about twenty. Uh, I, I finally kind of broke out of that way of thinking and realized like, wait a minute, I've been pretty confused. I need to kind of like step back and reevaluate my view on reality. And so, yeah, started thinking about a whole lot of other different problems that the world faces um, and what to do about them. And as you mentioned, I'm, I'm very interested in artificial intelligence, and that's because it could solve so many problems if we get it right, uh, but it also could cause so many problems if we get it wrong, in my view. And so I spent quite a while... Uh, working on um, trying to trying to help the movement of people who are who are sorting out how do we produce uh, safe and beneficial artificial intelligence um, through a number of different avenues and it was it was while I was in that community that I initially learned about cryptocurrency because I think it was because Wei Dai was part of uh, a discussion community called Less Wrong on the internet uh, which which uh, consists of a lot of people interested in AI and AI safety. Um, mm -hmm. And he was also part of the cryptocurrency, um, you know, the cypherpunks mailing list and and was um, thus aware of Bitcoin from the very start. And so people in that uh, less wrong kind of human rationality community uh, started talking about crypto pretty early on back in I think it was like 2010 or so. And so, you know, a number of us ended up buying a little bit of cryptocurrency back on Mt. Gox, uh, some, some Bitcoin and, and um, you know, thinking like, well, you know, if this is going to become the next form of money for the world, uh, maybe we're early to it. Maybe we should buy some. I wasn't, you know, an investor or anything at the time. I was just a, a young, young person um, with, you know, a tiny bit of spending money, um, putting a little bit of it into this random new thing. And, uh, but it was that, like, you know, that experience that caused me to a couple things. So it's like one, you know, I started thinking about, you know, just from like a speculator's perspective, thinking like, well, uh, what would have to happen for Bitcoin to become uh, a currency of the world? And um, there was like a conversation over dinner one night uh, with some acquaintances where, um, we ended up concluding, or at least I ended up concluding that like the more Bitcoin would be adopted, if it would be adopted, you know, the more people would be buying into it, the more that would be driving the price up. And it just seemed, you know, I wasn't an economist. It just seemed intuitive to me that if the price of something, if the value of something keeps going up, you wouldn't want to spend it. You'd want to hoard it. And so it seemed very unlikely to me that people would end up using it transactionally. And so I kind of concluded like, well, this is like a cool idea, but it's sort of a flawed experiment from the beginning because of the fixed supply and the sense of being able to work as money. Um, and unfortunately for me as a speculator, that led me to sell all of my Bitcoin um, <laughs> uh, in 2012. Um, but um, <laughs> but, it, it, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> um, but it opened up the door to um, like before then, I had always sort of thought that like money was just kind of baked into reality, was kind of this thing that was controlled by the government and that no one could ever really do anything different about it. Um, but that did kind of start me thinking about like, huh, that's weird. Like, so are we allowed to just create different forms of money if we want to? And I remember when I was young, even like feeling like the stock market was part of the government. Like when I was a kid, it just seemed like the stock market was like a government entity. And, uh, and, and there wasn't anything that you, you, you couldn't go make a different marketplace or something like that. Um, so yeah, this is kind of this like awakening of like, oh, wait a minute, you know, we can change this, we can make new versions of this, etc. 
Um, and it's interesting because actually, like with the history of the U.S., you know, we kind of had a phase as a country where we were like, private money is not allowed. You know, right. we sort of we, right. we played around with private money. We decided no. And there's even like laws saying you can't create your own coins. Um, and then interestingly, uh, we just decided not to apply those laws to digital coins. We just kind of, it's almost like society forgot about why we made those laws or something. Mm. Um, and we just have decided like, okay, no, it's fine to create coins again, as long as they're digital, um, which is pretty, it's kind of weird. I'm still a little puzzled about how that happened, honestly. Um, mm. Uh, but yeah, so basically, you know, it, it, at that time, um, started thinking about could we have a, a form of money that didn't depend on governments that was somehow better. Um, I was interested in that, you know, because I was thinking about like, well, how do we improve capitalism overall? Capitalism is obviously really powerful. I think modern Americans don't actually often appreciate the the, the benefits and power of capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, we tend to focus on, at least the, the liberal side of the spectrum, tends to focus on all the problems with it. And that mm -hmm. was certainly true of me as a kid. I sort of thought money was bad. And if you were wealthy, that meant you were like greedy and like not a good person. I don't mm -hmm. really think that anymore. But I was kind of coming from that ideology. And so, you know, I spent some time thinking about like, well, how do we improve capitalism? How do we make it so that um, the capitalist system doesn't cause kind of the extraction of resources and the exploitation of people and all of that? And, and so I thought for a long time about like, well, could you, is there some way to make a different currency and kind of a different uh, capitalism, capitalist operating system on top of that currency that would somehow solve those problems? And I don't really think that there is an obvious answer there. I don't really think that um, the creation of uh, non-fiat cryptocurrency will solve all the problems with capitalism. Although programmable money is an interesting thing. And maybe with programmable money and smart contracts, we could start to change uh, the way that um, certain things work in capitalism. And I still am I'm kind of curious to see what we're able to figure out. And I do think that there's a lot of utopian people in the crypto, you know, kind of Ethereum and other uh, crypto communities who would like to see that as well. Um, so we'll see how that goes. But uh, but yeah, but so basically, I came at it from that perspective. And then really what, you know, I, I was there sort of mostly focusing on AI stuff and uh, but like thinking a little bit kind of in in my evenings about like could could we somehow improve capitalism um, and uh, eventually you know 2017 rolls around you know there's a huge crypto bubble lots mm -hmm. of money and energy flowing into the space and that caused me to kind of go check in you know I sort of hadn't been paying that close of attention so I hadn't understood like what smart contracts were. Um, and so went and checked in and was like, holy crap, like this is nuts. Um, you know, sort of understanding the the advancements that had been made. And actually, there's, I mean, I know this is a long winded thing, but I'm telling you the actual story here. Like I, I looked at um, what was going on in the crypto bubble at the time, at first from a sociological perspective. Um, I didn't immediately think, okay, we should go try to create a cryptocurrency that works its money. I started off kind of trying to understand why do bubbles even happen? Right. Um, I'd always been confused about the, the tech bubble, you know, because I hadn't really been paying attention at that time. I was quite young when the tech bubble happened. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was like, oh, well, there's another one of these happening and I'm living in, you know, in the Bay Area. I can just go talk to people and understand like the dynamics at play. So I started reading about like the very first stock market and like the history of speculation and stuff and just going to crypto meetups in San Francisco and talking to people and just trying to figure out what was going on. Um, and that taught me a lot about 
speculation and the speculative cycles of markets and like the psychology behind it. Mm. Um, and um, but then through that contact with the industry at that time, even though it was kind of insanity and everyone kind of knew that it was insanity, I couldn't help but but notice like, wait a minute, um, you know, people are still talking about Bitcoin becoming money. And that seems weird. It's like, why Why at this point are we still thinking Bitcoin is going to be used as a currency? And, uh, you know, Tether had been invented. So there was kind of this basic idea of a stable coin. Um, but, but there weren't, you know, it, it still was not clear to me that there was any credible attempt to create something that was independent of fiat money, independent of like the US dollar or any other fiat currency. Um, even decentralized attempts like, uh, you know, Maker already existed at the time and, and others had started thinking about different ideas. They all tended to assume that they would peg to a fiat currency like the US dollar. Um, and there was like a little bit of a discussion of like, maybe you'd peg to SDR or maybe you would try to peg to some, you somehow incorporate consumer price index data, but no one really had a plan for how to do that. And so um, this led me and some friends to um, kind of think through like, well, what, how, you know, how would you do that? Is there some way that you could actually create a cryptocurrency that was independent of fiat money? And so, you know, the, the idea at that time that captured me about that was, I mean, number one, like I, 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 well, I guess I shouldn't say number one, but like in no particular order, like I was excited about making money um, and, and, you know, you I were? want to make a lot of money. Yeah, you, you know, I was, I was, um, yeah. and, and, and I still am. And, and part of that is that, you know, there's things that I want to fund that I don't know that I can convince anyone else to fund. Mm. Um, and so if I have my, if I have money myself, then I'll be able to pursue those right. things. And some of them are in the domain of AI safety. Um, in particular, I'm interested in, uh, trying to create like a productive global regulatory framework. Um, mm. not sure if that's possible, but that's something that I am interested in doing at some point in the future. But anyway, the, or actually I really don't want to do that. I would rather not do that. I, but I, I hope somebody does it. Um, yeah. and I'm willing to do it if nobody else does it. Well, <laughs> I would be happy to fund other people yeah. doing it. <laughs> I think that yeah. would be better but but anyway so money was a draw but also like in terms of like ideologically the draw initially was um the idea that you could have a currency that wasn't dependent on governments and so uh when major uh empires fall apart and uh fiat currencies fall apart with them um you would you would have a, a currency that would sort of persist throughout all of that and be sort of this stable thing in the background that would allow economies to keep functioning um, rather than having sort of a, you know, economy sort of revolution every time, um, every time a reserve currency falls apart. Um, and, um, and so that was kind of like a very big abstract idea, you know, a very long-term idea. And, but then as soon as we started actually concretely looking into this project and thinking like, well, if we were to do this, what would it actually look like? Um, we immediately started thinking about, well, okay, there's actually parts of the world that have currency issues today that are much mm -hmm. more pressing. Um, and so is there something we could do to start the project off um, that would provide immediate utility to people in the, in the world in, in those situations now? And so that's what led us to focusing on Venezuela and Argentina, mm -hmm. um, two economies that, you know, have dealt with quite a lot of inflation issues in recent years. Uh, and so, so, you know, so that's how we got into that. You know, at first it was just like looking at numbers on the internet being like, wow, these numbers are crazy. What must it be like to live in these, in these places? And then, you know, spend some time uh, traveling and talking to people um, and decided that, um, that we wanted to focus on providing a practical solution as the first stage of the project. So that's kind of how I, how we got, you know, how I got from <laughs> environmentalism to AI <laughs> to, um, to trying to create a, a non-fiat cryptocurrency. 
Interesting. So you actually went from AI to to the crypto um, to the crypto part, but I think it's admirable that you're actually doing something with the utility part and the fact that you. I mean, there, there's a lot of, there's a mix, right? There's a philosophical, sociological, psychological. Um, I think that's that's an awesome way to to start with. But so obviously, I mean, we're all familiar with the Argentina's ongoing devaluation crisis and the abnormal economy and as well as Venezuela. For that reason, like you said, Latin America is obviously the region you're covering. I just wanted to in- intervene here because it's, um want to maybe touch upon a little bit about just the stable currency picture in terms of what it means in the macro fiat world. So the, I just wanted to say um, my family is Slovenian, so, which means that we endured the ex-Yugoslavian hyperinflation crisis in the late mm. 1980s. Mm. Yeah, um, I'm probably older than you are, <laughs> but I was. I, I grew up um, just as a little girl. I mean, my father was a banker, and uh, and we moved back and forth from ex Yugoslavia to the states. And you know, it's funny because he he taught me the value of um, stable currencies. Then you know, it was for us. It was the Deutschmark, um, the dollar, because we moved back and forth to the U.S. and then the Swiss franc. So mm-hmm. it. The, the mentality in, in ex-Yugoslavia was it's good to have these stable currencies. Um, mm-hmm. So I I remember that as a kid and remember always, this is not obviously, the story is not about me, we're talking about you, but just, just to illustrate that I've actually lived through this hyperinflation and yeah. I'm not yeah. sure if, you know, there's, there's so much political... You know, is whether or not the the when when the currency falls or starts inflating itself or whatever is is that like a ripple effect of everything that's going on under the behind the scenes? But I wanted to sort of ask you what what are what do you think are the most radical sort of historical cases of a currency losing its value, funds being confiscated, and and assets being depreciated? Yeah, besides yeah. the tulip making, um, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I'm not, I'm definitely not, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not really an expert in the details of the history, but from my mm-hmm. understanding, you know, the ones that I'm aware of, um, I think, you know, there's, there's an event in Argentina, I think it was in 2000, 2001, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, they call it uh, the Coralito, mm-hmm. um, where basically in that situation, um, you know, they had been defending an exchange rate peg to the U.S. dollar for a while, and that had been going well. And essentially, they ended up running low on U.S. dollar reserves to defend that peg. Um, and so there ended up being a, a moment in time where people's U.S. dollar bank deposits were uh, were suspended, uh, or you know, their, their being their ability to withdraw was suspended. Uh, a little bit like what's happening with Celsius right now, incidentally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, their dollar deposits were forcibly converted to Argentine pesos, eventually at something like a quarter of what the prior exchange rate had been. Right. And so it's kind of like you you find out that you can't withdraw your money, and then you eventually can withdraw it, but you only have a quarter of the value that you thought you had. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And, you know, that's that's similar to what it sounds like your family's experience was like to the point where, you know, your 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 parents would kind of try to impress upon you. Hey, you need to think about it this way or that way. There's definitely like a a deep sort of trauma in the Argentine culture where people refer to that event. You know, people teach their children not to trust, um, you know, keeping money in bank accounts in some Mm -hmm. cases uh, because of what happened there. Um, And then. You know, interestingly, much more recently, 
Um, you know, there's been a kind of crazy situation that's a little bit similar, um, although I think perhaps for different causes um, in Lebanon. Um, and I, I'm not I'm not an expert in, in what happened here, but for anyone listening to this who's curious about it, you should check it out because um, that's a case where at least the, the popular narrative is that the banking apparatus uh, just really operated um, in a really uh, a really um, what's the right word like a very irresponsible way, um, uh, and, and people accuse it of being almost a Ponzi scheme where the um, essentially the rate of return. Um, the amount of interest that was being paid on U.S. dollar deposits was totally unsustainable. And uh, yeah, they just ended up in a situation where there really weren't dollars in the system to honor people's withdrawals. Um, and that caused a huge issue and ended up leading to a devaluation. Mm-hmm. And so those are a couple of examples and actually relatively recent history. Um, you know, er, uh, I actually don't know the year, but um, you know, Zimbabwe fam- famously had a really extreme hyperinflation. I actually don't understand the details of what happened there. And then, you know, one of the oldest cases that or older cases that people talk about, um, you know, is uh, Germany after the war. Um, you know, there's sort of the famous pictures of uh, yeah. children playing with huge stacks of money um, and people, you know, having to put money in wheelbarrows. The, the thing is that, like, um, it's frequently the case that so, 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 like, okay. So, if we look at, like, say, Venezuela and Angola, Angola had a major devaluation several years ago, and Venezuela, you know, obviously had ongoing hyperinflation. In both mm-hmm. those cases, you had a situation where the economy is dependent on the export of oil. Angola and Venezuela both are like a mostly export oil, mostly import everything else type economy. You have tons of U.S. dollars flowing into the economy all the time in exchange for the oil that's flowing out. And so then if there's anything that disrupts that particular channel to the point where uh, the the oil sales slow down, then all of a sudden the flow of U.S. dollars into the economy and and sort of the the flow of demand for that local currency can sharply decline. And that Mm -hmm. happened um, to both Angola and Venezuela Actually, maybe um, at a similar time now that I think about it, because basically, if you have a, a drop in the global you know, oil price, and this could happen because of discovery of new supply or um, some sort of sharp reduction in demand, then all of a sudden, like some oil producing countries will become uncompetitive compared to whatever other sources are, are a bit more efficient. And so you can have you know, sort of these really dramatic drops in the amount of US dollars flowing into the economy and, and, and thus the amount of demand for the local currency. And so, yeah, and so basically the, the central bank that normally would be managing a flow of dollars and uh, you sort of are at an equilibrium all of a sudden can run dry on dollars. Um, and, um, and, and so then oftentimes you get capital controls instituted. And that makes sense. If you're the person managing the sort of the foreign exchange for the entire country, for the entire economy, you have to make sure that your country uh, as, a, as a country sort of has enough dollars uh, for its businesses to import the, the critical, the most critical goods and, and services, and I, guess, I guess mostly goods, um, like food and medicine. And so you get a situation where it's like, okay, you can no longer convert your local currency to foreign currency uh, through the official channels unless you are importing food or medicine or, or maybe another, you know, a small number of critical things. And so 
What happens is people in that situation panic because you're like, oh my gosh, I can't convert this local currency to US dollars. We're in some sort of crisis. The local currency is probably going to devalue. And so what do you do? You go to the black market to buy dollars um, okay. informally, not through the central bank, You know, whether it's electronically or, or often in cash. And when everybody rushes to that parallel market to buy dollars, you know, there may not be a whole lot of liquidity in that parallel market in that moment because everyone's used to going through the central bank. And so that can very quickly drive up the, the price of the dollar in terms of that local currency, um, you know, sometimes many fold. And that happened in Angola um, uh, to, to the extent where um, all of a sudden your local Angolan Kwanzaa, you know, just feels like it's virtually worthless compared to what you thought. Um, and, that, and that can cause, you know, that can cause a real crisis of confidence for that local currency. And so, yeah, it's kind of this weird thing where like capital controls, um, you, you often sort of people often think I thought that capital controls were often just there to try to like prevent people from trading out of the local currency, um, you know, sort of trying to artificially prop up demand for the local currency. But mm. oftentimes there's more mechanistic objectives where it's like, no, we just have a set number of dollars flowing into the economy and we have to make sure to ration those dollars in order to make sure that we can import the critical things. And so we have to institute this policy. And, and oftentimes um, it's actually not that discouraged for people to trade uh, dollars on parallel markets. It's, uh, it's often tolerated um, because it's understood that you know businesses need that liquidity um, but they're just not allowed to do it at whatever rate the central bank is offering uh, to the businesses um, that are importing whatever is considered critical. So, uh, so yeah, so that, that's how, you know, people talk about you get these like situations where you have multiple exchange rates. We have the official rate and the unofficial rate. Sometimes you have multiple different official rates for right. like, yeah. you know, different industries yeah. or whatever. And people often try to take advantage of those and arbitrage them. But like, if it, it, it's sort of like pe people tend to look at those and sort of blame the people who are running the system being like, oh, they must be corrupt. They must be whatever. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they are. But the, I found that the more you learn about it, the more you're like, oh, if I was in that situation, maybe I would have my hand would have been forced to do the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just sort of like an unfortunate consequence of. Um, of the overall economic situation that is played out. And, you know, governments, uh, I think, oftentimes could be more fiscally responsible. Um, and, and oftentimes, I think governments do get themselves into these situations via overspending or overborrowing. But yeah, but oftentimes it's, it's, you know, you kind of just get forced into those situations, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, you, you advocate for access to stable currencies um, to be considered a human right. All right, let's switch a little bit. And actually, there are two quotes from your website that caught my attention, and I know that you speak about this immensely. So the first one is stable currency, a human right, right? And then the second yeah. one is a stable, decentralized, and inflation-resistant world reserve currency not pegged to any one fiat currency. Now, I know the latter is your long-term mission at Reserve, <laughs> yeah. and you've discussed both topics at length already, but can you just briefly speak to this? Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we realized uh, maybe a year or so ago, um, you know, we we're trying to distill this attitude that we have about um, about it being very important for people to have access to stable currency. And we realized that humanity kind of does have a framework for talking about which things are like truly essential um, to, uh, you know, in, in the words of, I think, the UN, like living a dignified human life. And that's the idea of a human right. And, you know, it's, it's, I mean, rights are kind of weird things. It's like, how do you decide if something should be a right or not? But one way of thinking about it is like, 
you know, if we sort of agree that it's essential to a functioning, uh, flourishing life, and if it's something that really is within reach of offering to everybody, um, you know, at a relatively low cost, um, then we tend to consider it a right. It's like, you know, clean, you know, access to clean, clean, you know, drinking water or something, for example, it's like everybody needs it. And it's like, yeah, it seems like we can do that. You know, it seems like something that's, that's not particularly difficult, you know, as opposed to, for example, I don't know, like, like, let's say like, you know, I'm just making this up. So maybe this is going to be a weird example, but like, um, you can imagine saying like, well, mental health is a human right and everyone should be mentally healthy because if you're not mentally healthy, then, you know, your experience is going to be bad and full of suffering and and problems and you'll make bad decisions and so on. But Mm -hmm. we don't know how to offer mental health to everybody. That's, that's a very complicated thing. And so it wouldn't make sense for us to decide it's a human right because, you know, we just don't know how to offer it. And stable currency is kind of interesting because you could argue that it's like mental health. Where it's like, well, you know, it's a very, you know, economics are very complicated, currency and markets and so on are very complicated. And so maybe there is actually no way to guarantee access to a stable unit of currency to everybody. But our attitude is kind of like, yeah, sort of, but like technologically speaking, um, it actually doesn't seem out of reach. It actually seems like the forces that make it so that uh, some populations don't have access to stable currency are often political or legal. Um, and if we just sort of were willing to use the technology and knowledge at our disposal, we actually could provide access to stable currency to um, to many more people or to everybody. And so like these days, you know, we're doing that by basically opening up the access to the US dollar um, to people who maybe would have had a harder time getting that access because the US dollar is relatively stable. And then in the long term, you know, we're sort of looking for a way to, to not even depend on something like the U.S. dollar um, so that we could actually, from a technological perspective, offer that stability to the entire world indefinitely. Um, but again, it's like it really ends up being like a legal or political challenge to do that, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you have you have strong knowledge regarding stable coins given everything that I've listened to. I mean, we all know USDT and USDC and the and the recent Terra and um, downfall. But in fact, you actually warned about the uh, Algo stablecoins a few years ago. I'm sure everybody asked you this at the, at the Latin American Bitcoin and Blockchain Conference. Um, <laughs> I also saw the video you posted on your blog trying to explain it. I think it would be beneficial for our listeners to get a wider perspective. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you, what, if anything, has changed or reaffirmed in your perspective post the Terra collapse? Yeah. Um, Hopefully you're not sick of talking about it, but... <laughs> no, 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 I'm not. I'm I not. It's, um, it's a good question. What has changed? I mean, the thing is, like, we'd already seen the senior shares model be tried and fall apart a few times. And so, in a sense, I would say very little has changed in my perspective. You know, it's sort of... It sort of was obvious to us upon just thinking it through without even seeing any examples. And then the examples have kind of confirmed uh, what was what was suspected. I do feel like, though, this is like a slightly more powerful confirmation because, you know, there, there's the, the, the people who were believers in that idea would say, well, yes, this thing has the potential to fall apart. But so long as demand is maintained, the, the party will keep going, you know, it's sort of like as, as long as the music is playing, um, right. it's fine. And uh, and there was a way in which, you know, Tara and and Doe in particular, um, you know, exerted a really powerful reality distortion field, which, you know, ultimately ended up being the cause of all of this 
destruction. But you know, before the collapse, you, you couldn't really be 100% confident that they wouldn't somehow manage to pull it off to just keep the music yeah. going forever. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I, I think that having something, uh, having a, a senior share style stablecoin fall apart at that scale, even with you know, an enormously powerful marketing force and and quite a big war chest and an enormous community of believers and so on, having that fall apart, um, I think just makes it that much more obvious how quickly the sentiment can shift on these things, right? And that's something where, you know, you, you, can, you can theorize about market participants and how they will act in different situations. But I think that this really concretely illustrated that people who were believers can go to being non-believers in literally a matter of minutes yeah. just by seeing uh, something happen on the charts and in, in, in the liquidity pools and so on that they didn't expect where you know they were so confident um and then and then as soon as as soon as everyone starts to see um that the thing is unraveling you know that sentiment can just be so self-referential and so we had theorized that that's what would happen um, but to really see it on that scale i think you know it's easier to sort of believe it in your gut at this point mm -hmm. i actually also i um i remember a tweet that you um actually put out that you said that we need a stablecoin grandma index to show real world adoption. Uh, I love that. And also make sure that no algo stablecoins rise again. So stablecoin grandma index. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the stablecoin grandma index, you know, it's somewhat tongue in cheek, but I actually think it's a cool idea. It's like, you know, awesome. it's basically just like how many grandmas use yeah. any given stablecoin, right? right? And uh, I said partially jokingly, although I do actually think this is Truth maybe true, that yeah. I think reserve is maybe used by more grandmas than any other stablecoin because it's used as ordinary money in, in some countries in Latin America. And yeah, and then the idea is like, if any algo stablecoin started to creep up on the grandma index that's real cause for concern you know it's, it's sort of okay in my book if crypto degens want to experiment with whatever they want to experiment with you know they can have smart contracts that are just transparent ponzi schemes and as long as it's just gamblers gambling against gamblers then like okay fine you know have your fun um you know what really what i really don't like is when people you know believe that the thing that they're using is going to be stable and is going to preserve their savings and then it doesn't um mm -hmm. so so yeah so if anyone out there wants to start the stable queen grandma index uh you know, send me a DM. I'll uh, I'll help you get it off the ground. <laughs> we'll put in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's let's uh, talk about Reserve. So, Reserve, you're a co-founder, if I'm not mistaken. So, you lead the R Token tribe, yep. um, and are responsible for developing and promoting your um, smart contract protocol and including decentralized governance. Um, just side note: Are you aiming to eventually become a DAO? Um, yes, but in a sort of different way from how a lot of projects do it, because each R token that is uh, governed in a decentralized way kind of has its own DAO. And so it's sort of like uh, all of the stable coins that get created on top of the reserve um, protocol will sort of be individual DAOs. Um, and then, you know, and then there is a question about like, what about the what about the project overall in terms of like, uh, you know, making like developing improvements to the base protocol and so on. Um, and so there we we have ideas for how to uh, basically decentralize the project further. Um, there's there's some a few things that we're still exploring and haven't solidified on how to do that yet. So I guess I won't say one thing or another because I don't want to misinform. But um, but generally speaking, that yeah, the idea is to you know to get to the point where the project is fully decentralized on the protocol side, both in terms of the ongoing development 
um, and uh, and the individual R tokens. And, and one thing about that is that you could have one R token get pretty popular, and then a bunch of people could you know write a bunch of code that upgrades sort of the protocol, the instance of the protocol that R token's running, and other R tokens may not use those updates. So actually, over the course of time, um, you, you, there might not even be one coherent effort to um, improve you know, the reserve protocol, because the reserve protocol really is just a template that you can use to make um, to make different instances. Um, and so it's actually going to look like a series of DAOs. Mm, okay. And also you're based in the US, right? Yeah. And, but you're operating mainly in Latin America. Yep, um, yep. Yeah. The project was founded in the Bay Area. Um, and we do mm-hmm. still have some team members in the US. Although at this point, uh, there are team members in, you know, many on many continents and the vast majority of our team is throughout Latin America. Okay. So you do have local staff. Yep. Yep. How did you manage to overcome or were there compliance barriers in terms of um, yeah, um, the US? The, yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, the so yeah, so basically, you know, we've created this app that is uh, it's a you know it's a it's a cloud custody wallet. We hold the stable coins for people in the way that we do it now. So that means that we have to operate you know like any crypto exchange in terms of KYC and AML policies and so on. And also critically in, uh, as well in terms of OFAC, which is the Office of Foreign Asset Control, and that's the body that um, implements the U.S. sanctions rules. And that's particularly relevant because we have customers in Venezuela, and there are um, not comprehensive, but there are broad sanctions in Venezuela that we have to make sure that we abide by. So. In terms of overcoming um, um, compliance barriers, you know, I think actually all of the like money service business compliance has been relatively straightforward. You know, we we take it's taken a lot of time and energy to build out all of our programs and make sure that all works well. Um, mm-hmm. But but it's it's pretty you know it's not that um, complicated at the end of the day. Um, the OFAC compliance has been a larger lift, and uh, we ended up basically you know, creating a whole screening program inside of our application that goes above and beyond checking. Uh, the normal list of names you check because of the fact that there are sanctions that refer to uh, Venezuelan government bodies. So we have to, we have a whole internal procedure for maintaining an an additional list of names um, above and beyond the ordinary list um, in order to make sure that we're we're complying on the sanctions front. So that's been more complicated, but I feel pretty good about it. Basically, we as a business decided early on to invest in being able to serve people in Venezuela um, along with other countries in Latin America. And so it took a while to get that going, but it also, you know, it's like a lot of other companies are nervous about offering services to people in Venezuela. And Mm -hmm. so by um, making that investment, we kind of differentiated ourselves. We ended up, you know, as a business having a bit of an advantage, um, but also just as a humanitarian project, being able to serve this population that obviously was relevant um, in terms of uh, having a need for stable currency when, you know, maybe we otherwise wouldn't have been able to do that without that special investment. So I'm pretty, I'm very happy that we decided to go that route. Mm, that's, that's great. Um, so if I understand correctly, and you did, you did already allude to um, the app. <laughs> so users, you have the reserve app, you refer to it as RPay. Um, mm-hmm. So they download basically from the Apple store. I actually tried to do that, um, but is it, it's only in Spanish? 
or I got this yeah, in Spanish? Yeah, the app is only in Spanish right now. Um, mm -hmm. It will be multilingual relatively soon because um, we're actually like we're actually in the process of getting uh, prepared and getting licenses in the U.S. to offer service to people in the U.S. Um, as well. But, uh, okay. but yeah, right now it's it's only it's only really used in Latin America. I think you can download the app anywhere, but you can't actually sign up unless you can sort of show that you're in one of the countries that we offer service in. Uh, okay, okay, yeah, I, I didn't go further, but I just I was curious. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And and so they download from the Apple Store or wherever um, to interact with digital dollars. So these are based on the crypto stable coins that the mix that you have. But users do not handle the stable coins themselves. So the app is not a Web3, like you just said before, in terms of decentralization. It's not a Web3 non-custodial wallet at this point. That's right. That's right. You can you can withdraw your RSV yeah. on chain and, and, and we'll send you an ERC20 transaction. You can deposit um, RSV in order to get the balance into the app. But yeah, it's it's like, a, you know, it's like a Coinbase account in, in that you just see your balances and you can you can transfer them to other users on the platform and, and buy and sell them with fiat currencies. But you're planning to change the custody model in the future? In the past, we planned to like fully convert the app from cloud custody to user custody. Mm -hmm. And now the way we think about it is that it probably makes sense to support both uh, mm -hmm. because both models have advantages and disadvantages. So, so yeah, so I think in the future we'll support both. I think it's really important for people to have the option of uh, self-custody, you know, in part just, you know, for their own like personal I feel like sovereignty is actually like a little bit, uh, a little bit overstating it, but like just having control of your money, I think is, is a nice thing. Um, but also, you know, there are some situations where like, I don't, I don't really personally fully agree with all of the controls we have to put in place uh, on, on people's transactions um, as a result of the regulatory regimes we're subject to. We do, you know, we, we comply as, as, as closely as we possibly can, um, but I don't personally like that. I like the idea of people having their money, being able to transact any amount at a time that they want to, and being able to have any size balance that they want to. Um, I, th I just think that that's better. And, and I think also there can be situations where where people in certain countries um, or with certain profiles get progressively pushed more and more out of financial systems. And I would like to be able to offer people a service where they can know that that's mm -hmm. not possible. Where it's like, look, even if we as a business are forced to stop serving you, you control the money. And so you, know, you don't have to worry about like your balance being frozen or being taken away from you or anything like that. Uh, the, the, the only thing you have to worry about is like the convenience of this platform going away, but you control the money itself and you can go use it on any other platform that you want to. I think that that's um, pretty powerful. And so the only reason we didn't start that way is just that the, you know, the practical constraints of, um, you know, having built on Ethereum, uh, we needed to be that people can make small transactions um, quickly and cheaply. And so um, we, we built uh, in a centralized way and we've been watching the L2 space develop, uh, thinking about, you know, what is the right way to allow people to hold and transact their coins directly on, you know, a blockchain or some sort of layer two. Mm, okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. I'll actually nitpick a, a little bit. So as I understand, there are two ERC tokens. Um, you have, obviously, we talked about the RSV token. So this is the basic stable coin, right? Um, yep. that's backed by the sort of the trio one third formula between USDC, um, true USD and PAX, am yep, I, am that's right? right. Yep. Uh, all running on Ethereum. And then you have the governance token, the RSR or reserve rights token. 
yep. um, without current functionality, but it's in the works and including staking opportunities. Yep. Did yep. I say that That's right? That's all right. <laughs> so... I also read, so you, you're aiming to also link both functionalities at, at, at a later point or are, where are you now in terms of the process? So you're in terms of RSR that has not been launched yet. Yep. 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 So we're close to launching the full reserve protocol. It's kind of weird because we've been around for several years and yet we still haven't launched our full protocol. Um, yeah. and, and that happened because we kind of decided to take this massive detour and build out our app to try to make stable coins actually useful as money to ordinary people in the places that need it. Uh, we kind of we kind of figured like, actually that's maybe a bigger challenge or bigger barrier um, to real adoption of the type we wanted. So we decided to go ahead and do that. We came back to working on the protocol about a year ago. Um, and so we're, we're getting close to, to launching it. Um, and what that will enable is, um, I'm super excited about it. It basically, it makes it so that anybody can deploy a stable coin that's backed by a basket of other ERC-20 tokens on Ethereum. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can choose what that initial basket is. And you can also define, um, you, can, you can define sort of a deterministic set of other coins that can be swapped out in the case of any sort of emergency. So there's like a basket and then there's sort of like a sort of backup basket kind of configuration. And then uh, there's a couple other elements to the protocol. So one is decentralized governance. Um, so you can, you can set up uh, an R token, as we call them, uh, to be governed in a decentralized way so that uh, changes to the basket and other parameters can be made not just by like a single wallet or a multi-sig, but by like any any arbitrary smart contract. And uh, we think that's important for the long term of how this all works. And then there's also uh, a notion of insurance. And this is, so, you know, RSR comes in when it, in terms of governance. It's the natural uh, sort of stakeholder token to play a governing role. Although mm -hmm. you can design an R token that is governed in some other way that doesn't involve RSR if you want to. Um, mm -hmm. But I think in general, many of them will um, sort of rely on reserve rights uh, stakers to govern. Um, but let, let's talk about what does what staking mean? Mm -hmm. So if, if an R token uh, has been deployed, well, okay, there's one more piece we have to get to before staking makes any sense, and that's <laughs> revenue. So an R token can generate revenue. And the most natural revenue mechanism for an R token is uh, the lending out of its collateral. So basically you can um, you can have a collateral, a collateralized stable coin that's like one-to-one -one backed, uh, but you can set it up so that the underlying assets, whether they be US dollar stable coins or other tokenized assets or even cryptocurrencies, you could have, you could have ETH in the basket or whatever, um, those can be lent out uh, through you know, existing decentralized lending protocols like Compound. Um, and so the, the stable coin, the overall R token can generate some amount of revenue through that. That revenue can be divided. Um, it can be. It can all go to the R token. Basically, the R token itself can just appreciate, uh, or it could all go to the RSR stakers, uh, or you or you could def uh, define any combination therein. And you can actually even divert revenue to other addresses. It's like an open system, so you could you could create an R token and decide I'm going to give five percent of the revenue to myself. And as long as the governors leave that parameter as what it is, then you would just get a five percent cut of the revenue that that R token generates. Uh, but if the governors change that, then you would stop getting it. Anyway, so 
uh, as a reserve rights holder, you can look out at the available R tokens and see which one would offer you um, the, the the best combination of revenue um, and you know low risk, right? Because uh, you don't want to take very much risk, and you want to uh, you know sort of provide services and earn uh, reward. And so you can take your RSR and stake it on any one of those R tokens, or divide it and stake across many of them if you wanted to diversify. And when mm-hmm. you when you stake an, uh, an RSR token on an R token, uh, what you're doing is you're basically saying I'm putting up my capital. And in the event of a default of any of the underlying collateral assets, um, which may be likely or unlikely, depending on how risky that R token is, uh, my capital can be seized and used to make up for that default to make the stablecoin holders whole. So basically, I'm taking risk away from the stablecoin holders. I'm making the stablecoins safer, but in exchange, I'll get a cut of the revenue that this R token generates. And so it's it really is it's similar to insurance in a sense in that you're you're taking on risk you're providing sort of backstop capital and in exchange you're earning kind of like an insurance premium um, and you know we just call it like a staking reward but it kind of is like an insurance premium so so basically that kind of rounds out the two functions that RSR provides governance um, and uh, insurance. Now, those are the basics of the protocol and, and the reason for the insurance layer. Like, let me try to explain that a little bit more. Mm-hmm, let's say great. you have, let's say you have an R token and one of the tokens in the basket is, um, everyone likes to pick on Tether, so I'll pick on Tether. Um, <laughs> so let's say that there's some Tether in the basket and let's say that, you know, heaven forbid, Tether actually doesn't quite have uh, the the full backing that it needs at some, at some point in history. Maybe mm-hmm. it only has 95% backing, right? Maybe they took some losses on some commercial paper and they still have most of the money, but it's only 95%. And let's say that, you know, uh, Tether comes out and announces, we're really sorry, everyone, but you can now only redeem uh, one USDT for 95 cents instead of a dollar. And, you know, maybe, maybe they would do that so that there wouldn't be a bank run, right? It's not like the last 5% of people will get nothing. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, everyone's going to get only 95%. Okay. So all of a sudden Tether goes from trading at a dollar to trading at 95 cents, you know, and let's, let's just say that Tether makes up half of the backing of that R token. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now that R token has lost two and a half percent of its value, right? Cause it's mm-hmm. half of right. half, half of 5%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now, uh, you know, if there was no insurance, then the, that the stablecoin holders of, of that basket, they would have just lost two and a half percent of their value. Well, the way the insurance mechanism works is that in that case, uh, the, the protocol would detect um, through Oracle price feeds that the, that the USDT had lost 5% of its value. And as long as that um, as long as that loss shows up on the charts for more than a certain period of time, like a, an expected time when it would be probably like 24 hours or something, then the protocol can you can anyone can call a transaction to trigger um, a process where the protocol will automatically trade those USDT for whatever the predetermined backup asset was. So let's say the backup asset was true USD, okay, for, for that one. And so the protocol would trade the, the USDT for true USD, but it's mm-hmm. still missing, um, you know, 5% of that USDT or 2.5% of the total value. And so it can also seize some of the staked RSR to buy some extra uh, true USD to get back to the value um, that the R token had before the default. So basically, mm-hmm. this means that, um, you know, again, the, the reserve rights token holders are taking on that risk uh, and, and the R token holders don't have to worry as much about the risk. But in exchange, you know, the R token holders um, get less revenue. So, you know, like in, in this example, it's 
I simplified it a little bit by just saying it was USDT. You, what it actually could have been is like CUSDT, which is like the, the token that you get out of compound finance if you've lent out uh, USDT. And so you could have basically USDT denominated backing, but with, you know, one or two or 3% yield because of the, the lending out through compound. And so, um, you know, as the, as the R token holder, um, if there was no insurance, you would get all of that appreciation, all of that yield directly. Here, maybe you only got half because half of it was going to the RSR stakers. Um, but in exchange for, for reducing your yield, you also then didn't take a loss in the case of uh, that default happening. So that's kind of how that, how that you know, economic deal works between R token holders and RSR stakers. Mm, okay. And in terms of staking, you're loyal to the original meaning of staking. Um, and I gathered you're not a fan of the exchange type. <laughs> where yeah, I mean, I just practical I, I, use of your protocol. I mean, no, no, that's I commend you for that. I mean, I think that's yeah, yeah. It's it's like you know we call it staking because you're putting your assets at stake. Right. Yes. And, and so it's kind of frustrating to me that, you know, people talk about staking when it's like yes. you're just locking it up. You're just being paid to not dump, basically. Right. Um, right. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> just just quickly b- before we mentioned um, and sort of jumping around a little bit. But so with the users not settling on chain. I, so then I imagine the fees are not a problem at this point. Right. Yeah, that's right. So in terms of so who are your who are the liquidity providers? Um, in the app, the the liquidity providers are basically existing foreign exchange brokers in the countries that we serve. Okay, I was going to ask, um, so are they banks or are they the, private yeah. fiat currency exchange businesses? Yeah, they're, yeah, federal. they're not banks. They're not banks, um, right. but they are. Yeah, they're they're entities like um, in in some cases they're actually small crypto exchanges that that um, that have decided mm-hmm. to provide liquidity in our ecosystem. Um, okay. In other cases, they're just um, you know people who were trading you know dollars for local currency. Sometimes people who are trading crypto for local currency already. Um, you know, we've sort of manually built relationships and and found you know, upstanding uh, businesses, some of them large, some of them small, who then all plug into our system and uh, and make markets where, they, you know, they buy and sell for a slightly different price. And that's how they make their money. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask, how do you find them? I mean, how did you even go about um, connecting? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, I guess it's sort of like a different ways in different countries, but, um, you know, we just, we hire people to our team who are knowledgeable and connected, um, in the relevant industries. Um, and we often rely on their judgments as to, you know, who's trustworthy, who makes sense to work with, um, who should we steer clear of? Um, and that's actually gone really well. Mm -hmm. So I read that you cover five countries with RPay. Is that right? Or I also saw on your blog that you're planning to enter Mexico and you just said, okay, in terms of the US, um, which countries do you currently support? Yeah, we currently support um, Argentina, Venezuela, Colombia, Panama, Mm. and Peru. And um, yeah, Mexico is next. And we're excited to expand uh, pretty much all throughout Spanish-speaking Latin America, uh, not including Brazil, because that's a complicated different world. Uh, as well as adding support in the U.S., those are that, that, that's kind of the near-term expansion plan. But really, we're um, as a team, we're in the mindset of going global, um, mm-hmm. even though even though we're not global yet, and we kind of have to expand one one place at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, we've kind of we've mechanized the model enough 
that uh, we should, in theory, be able to add all the next countries much faster than we've added the current countries. And we've started to think about which other continents to focus on. And we really want to reach like total global uh, serviceability as fast as we can. We don't know how quickly we can do that, but we want to do it as fast as we can. Well, when the ruble crashed, um, did you did you look into maybe Ukraine or Russia, given this current situation? Or is to that- be totally honest, we didn't at all. And the reason mm-hmm. is just because, you know, we have enough... Uh, sort of political political mm-hmm. complication um, uh, just from being active in Venezuela um, mm-hmm. that we didn't want to take on additional political complication for the project at this early stage. And that's also a barrier to offering service in Lebanon, which we would like to do. Uh, but there's just there's a there's a political complication there too. And so I mean, I hope that the service ends up being robust and decentralized enough that, those political complications don't stop us in the long term from offering service, um, you know, in as many places as we can. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, in the short term, like, yeah, we all, you know, pe- uh, like a few people reached out to us, some investors said, hey, maybe you should blah. And we were just like, no, definitely not. Um, mm-hmm. We just don't have the appetite to, to jump into um, something that controversial at this moment in time. Yeah, true. Um, how would you illustrate the adoption up to now? So sort of savings versus transacting and does it vary from country to country or the trends similar? Yeah, um, it does vary. You know, the very, the very first use case that we hit upon was actually a total surprise. None of us expected it. And it's that, um, people in, I mean, I'm sure people all over the world, but people in some of the Latin American countries we serve, um, have jobs online and they earn money in dollars and they get paid uh, with PayPal or Payoneer or some other, you know, sometimes uphold. They get paid in a in a wallet in digital U.S. dollars and then they don't have a way to spend that money locally. And so um, by default, they often have to go to some sort of informal marketplace, like literally finding people on WhatsApp or Facebook groups to basically sell their uh, their kind of trapped, stuck uh, digital U.S. dollar balances for local currency, and because of the inefficiency of that marketplace and the risk that's involved, and so on, um, often the exchange rates are really harsh. You know, because people who are making markets there, you know, they're taking on a fair amount of risk and doing quite a lot of work, find their customers, and so on. Um, and and so you lose, you know, often ten or fifteen percent of the money you earned if you have to convert it that way. And so we ended up um, being able to offer better exchange rates because people could take money that they had in some sort of digital dollar account, convert it at a relatively favorable exchange rate into RSV in our app, and then they could make another conversion into their local currency. And so that was the first thing that caught on. And people wouldn't really even keep money in our system at all. They would convert it and then they'd immediately convert it out because from their perspective, we were just some random company, like we could have been there to scam them or something. Um, And so they would just use it as like a currency exchange mechanism. People started using it to send money across borders, you know, sort of the the um, in in the sense of remittances. Sometimes in the sense of doing business, um, people you know paying suppliers across borders. And then in in some places, you know, we've actually gotten to the point where people are starting to do all sorts of ordinary day to day financial transactions with it. So you know, in Venezuela in particular, um, there are uh, at this point. Um, something like 24,000 merchants who accept payment mm-hmm. in reserve directly. And and people actually do buy goods and services. The mm-hmm. 
The total transaction volume in Arpay at this point is about $5 million a day. And, you know, a meaningful portion of that is people buying goods and services. Uh, mm -hmm. There's also payroll. Like we've actually started to see like, okay, how do I explain this? We always keep track of what is the main method of people getting money into their reserve account in the app. And for mm -hmm. a long time, it was conversion in from fiat currency. And recently it sort of flipped to the point where most incoming money was actually just within the ecosystem, just from another reserve user. Mm -hmm. And so we did a survey because we were like, huh, that's interesting. What's the top uh, reason for those transactions? And we kind of suspected it was going to be remittances. And it was actually payroll, which is super exciting. So, you know, the biggest chunk of the biggest chunk of, you know, the reasons why people are getting money into their account is they're actually just getting paid directly in reserve right. stable coins. Right, right. Um, and so you you can sort of start to see the actual circulation um, in, in the normal economy of people getting paid and then buying things. And, you know, we have a little over 600,000 users in the app. Not all of those are active at any one time. Okay. Um, but, you know, it's like with that size of a user base and with, you know, the current, you know, $5 million in daily transaction volume, that's enough that mm -hmm. new merchants want to join, right? right. Like it, it, it's, it's a very, it's a no brainer to download the app, you know, maybe print out a QR code um, and start accepting it as a form of payment. And, uh, and, and merchants also like to use it for their own treasury management purposes, even for, you know, payments you get in say Argentine pesos or Venezuelan boulevards, mm -hmm. you can convert your money easily into digital U S dollars. And, and actually a lot of merchants, what they do is they'll convert it into digital U S dollars in, in, in the app, but then they'll make a withdrawal into an American bank account that they already have set up for their business. Um, mm -hmm. so that they have dollars in the banking system because you, they can't yet really pay their suppliers uh, with, you know, with their reserve account, right? Like their suppliers in the United States or abroad aren't necessarily on the network yet. And so it's very valuable for them to be able to get it into the American banking system and then make normal commercial payments from there. Wow. So you just said payroll. Um, that's like, the, that's like the next level of, of adoption. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Because I didn't, I mean, I, I listened to a, a bunch of um, also your community calls, et cetera. And um, actually, I didn't, I didn't hear that up until now. Um, yeah, we have like a really simple beta product that we provide to some companies that's like kind of a bulk payment uh, payroll service. It's not even advertised, but we, we okay. get asked for it a fair amount. So we have that running. And then a lot of it, I think, is actually small businesses where you only have, you know, five employees. You, you have income in, in, in our ecosystem, the app, and then people are just like manually paying, you know, literally on their phone, one transaction at a time um, mm. to, to their employees. Oh, that's awesome. So in terms of, in terms of reserve, you mentioned you have, you hire locally. I read that you're, so is your team structure up to 200 people? Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it might be 210 at this point, but yeah, it's right around 200. Okay. And, and so in terms of your organization, you're organized into two main tribes. So further on into guilds and squads, <laughs> did I get that right? Yes, that's right. So uh, the, the two tribes are the R token tribe, which is right. focused on the protocol and the production yes. of R tokens. And then, yeah, the R pay tribe, which focuses on the app. Yep. Okay. Just sort of a, a, a twist. Um, I also, just because I, I quickly checked out your Twitter, in terms of, you were just at the DC blockchain conference. Am I right? And you... Yeah. Yep. In terms of the legal and regulatory framework, can you is there are there any takeaways to share from that? Um, yeah. Um, or can you? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I have a number of thoughts there. Um, 
the the comprehensive legislation that's been proposed by uh, Senators Lummis and Gillibrand looks like it will take multiple years to work out. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there's a there's a bill. Uh, it's called the Stablecoin Trust Act. That's been pr- uh, proposed by Senator Toomey, um, mm-hmm. which is much smaller, much more focused on just uh, centralized fiat-backed stablecoins, and that looks like it could actually make it through this year. And oh, I think wow. that would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's as written, as far as I understand it, there's some nuances that like maybe fiat stablecoin issuers might be unhappy about because I, I don't quite understand all of the ways that it limits them. But it basically takes the um, the thing that we all want fiat stablecoins to do and formalizes it. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. you only hold the assets in things of the, uh, in these categories that are nice and safe and make sure to be transparent and, and you know, get audited and re- report regularly. Um, and it, and it basically it puts the OCC in the position to uh, to regulate these fiat-backed stablecoin issuers unless they're a bank. A bank can do it uh, as well without uh, getting the special OCC oversight. Um, so that all seems great. It also, um, in its current form, it uh, it formalizes the the fact that you don't need KYC for the users that transact peer to peer on chain. And I think providing that regulatory clarity and certainty would be great because you know under existing law that that does seem to be legal. That's how everyone's operating. It seems like that's going fine. But it'd just be really nice to have that in a statute where it's 100% clear that even a bank um, issuing fiat stable coins uh, would be able to allow users to trade them back peer to peer or back and forth between each other peer to peer without necessarily having to maintain KYC information for them. So mm. I'm a huge fan of that bill in as much as I understand it. I hope that it makes it through in its current form. Um, mm. There's some concern that like that last part that I mentioned might not uh, survive the, the process of going through various committees and whatnot. Um, but I think it'd be great for the industry um, if that is the first kind of major crypto law that gets put into place. Um, and I'm really thankful to Senator Toomey for proposing it. Um, so that's that's like kind of my my current understanding of near-term regulation um, that's on the horizon. I think, what else, what else can I share that's interesting here? You know, one big challenge is what do we do about, you know, algorithmic stable points? Right. Um, I was just going to ask because that was that you know, part of the discussion. Yeah, it's, you know, people talk about it, but it's pretty unclear what to do. Um, right. None of the currently proposed regulation actually says anything about mm-hmm. um, decentralized algorithmic stablecoins. And mm-hmm. if you think about it, um, I mean, I've thought about it, you know, for a little bit and it's like, it's like, well, you can't really stop people from creating them because anyone can create them worldwide and they're totally permissionless. So mm-hmm. if you're an American regulator and you're thinking about how to protect U.S. consumers, uh, stopping Americans from creating something dangerous wouldn't have stopped, you know, uh, say the terror team um, in Korea from, from creating such a thing. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, it's like maybe you could try to get all countries in the world to um, have a similar regulatory framework, but that just feels almost impossible. And so in my view, like it's like either we'll just not regulate them and like the world will just have to learn that these are dangerous things that you don't mm-hmm. want to play around with, you know, in the way that, you know, people tend to understand that Dogecoin is highly speculative. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe maybe the world can come to understand that algorithmic stable coins are sketchy and you shouldn't touch them. Um, mm-hmm. The thing that worries me about that approach of just, you know, sort of don't not protecting people from themselves is that um, if you it's like if you are part of the crypto industry right now, you have just been trained that algo stable coins are dangerous. You're not going to touch them. Nobody's going to touch them for the for a while. But if you join the crypto industry 
seven or 10 years from now, um, mm-hmm. this could just be like a, a sort of a tale from the distant past. You know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, people who join crypto today, maybe they hear about the DAO hack, but maybe they don't really know what the DAO hack actually was. They don't really understand that, mm-hmm. you know, it, it led to like a forking of Ethereum. Like, you know, there's, there's a lot of knowledge that just naturally gets lost as time goes by. Right. And so what I worry about is a scenario now where we keep on repeating the past every so many years because mm-hmm. the industry is growing and there's sort of all these new people who don't really understand because they weren't around for, you know, the major collapse that just happened. Mm-hmm. And so I see the potential role of regulation as trying to take lessons from the past and somehow propagate that information forward into the future and deliver it to consumers in like a just-in-time way where like as a consumer, you, you know, maybe an exchange or a wallet is kind of kind of forced to disclose to you some information um, that somehow helps you make a more informed decision, even if you weren't here to like learn this lesson in an intuitive way. So I imagine a, a possible regulatory regime where um, where basically you know stable coins are categorized somehow. This is not necessarily easy, but you know I think it could be done. And then um, you know consumer uh, like sort of the the the, the platforms that make uh, cryptocurrencies available to end consumers are required to like disclose you know the categorization and maybe maybe some sort of information about the type of stablecoin that somebody is using. And again, you know if you wanted to protect the consumers all around the world, then uh, countries would need to regulate that each individually. But uh, each country sort of gets the benefit when they uh, institute the regulation immediately for their own. Citizens, right? It's like the U.S. could have this disclosure regime, and that would protect American investors immediately. And so you can imagine U.S. regulators actually, uh, or lawmakers, being motivated um, to adopt um, a statute that actually works to that effect. So that personally is my like uh, most productive thought so far, and how we might regulate. Um, yeah. It's not fully baked, and maybe it doesn't make sense. Maybe it's better to just you know let let people learn. And I do actually think it's like with the securities laws, for example. I do think there's kind of an interesting thing. If you look at the crypto industry uh, and you look at all of the organic sort of response to scams, there's actually in a way like people in crypto are like much more scam savvy than like people who are who have never dealt with the crypto industry because you just learn you you actually are you're you're exposed to the true the mm-hmm. the truth about human nature which is that there's a bunch of sketchy people out there who are very happy to scam you at all times and mm-hmm. this is just a, a domain where they're allowed to do that at least so far there aren't things that are really preventing a lot of those things and so you kind of develop a thicker skin you kind of learn the lessons and you end up learning how to uh, protect yourself instead of having a regulatory regime protect you. And like, in a sense, like part of me is kind of like, maybe that's good. Maybe it's good for people to kind of like touch the hot stove once and get burned and then learn not to touch the hot stove instead of being born into a world where there's these like bumpers where you can never touch the hot stove and you don't even understand that it is hot and you're just sort of complaining about the bumper because it's getting in your way. Um, You know, I don't know. There's something interesting about that as as compared to like how we deal with the trading of securities. Well, sure. It's a growing pains. It's like a little child, right? (laughs) Just like what you said. Um, and if you're, if you, if you dive in, yeah, I mean, of course people get hurt and it's, it's horrible. And I guess what happened to Tara, et cetera, but otherwise you're not going to get anywhere. And if you're in it, 
Um, I also find it, I mean, I think you just touched um, a good point that there's also, it's not all bad. That's <laughs> uh, also very good. And there's also a lot, a lot of pro- proactivity trying to to get over the growing pains. Yeah. Wow. Well, we've actually been speaking for over an hour. I have a few more questions, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, I'm happy to. So this is just my curiosity. I mean, you're backed by big names such as Peter Thiel and Coinbase. Um, do you get, this is my, I want to know, do you get nervous or overwhelmed by carrying such a mission as with Reserve? Are you just like fired up and, and go? Every day? <laughs> um, no, I get nervous and overwhelmed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you know, I think that, um, I think that, uh, I think there's, um, it's an interesting question. It's like, the, the, the thing is that I'm not nervous and overwhelmed because of those big names. Mm. Um, like actually, like, I think, you know, Peter Thiel, for example, you know, he's a very savvy investor, um, mm. and he knows what risk he's taking when he invests in something super early stage. Mm. Um, you know, and I think it's like, he met us and he's like, all right, you know, these people are smart and if this works, it could be huge. And like, you know, uh, of course he, he, he was, I'm sure quite uncertain about whether it would possibly work. And so, um, obviously I want to do right by all of our supporters, but, um, I actually, I think I get much more nervous and overwhelmed, um, because of our public token holders, um, because, you know, I worry a lot more about public token holders buying the token and maybe not understanding the nature of the situation. And so, um, so yeah, so I think that that's like a much larger source of stress for me. And, and also I think actually a lot of it is also just about like, uh, my relationships with the people on the team and that we're working with and and the people that I'm dealing directly with where, you know, in my position in the project, there, there's sort of the situation where there's always like a one to two month backlog of things that I wish I had gotten done by now, mm. um, where, where people are waiting on me to do them. Mm-hmm. because I kind of am the right person in the right position to do that thing. And, you know, maybe we haven't found someone else who can take on that particular aspect of, of my of my role yet. Um, and so I, I kind of feel nervous and overwhelmed just because, you know, in order for other people on the team to succeed, they need things from me. Um, and so I'm kind of constantly putting in as much time and effort as I can to empower other people to, you know, to get things done, to de-bottleneck things so that other people on the team can um, can make progress and succeed and so that we can do the thing we're trying to do overall. And yeah, for some reason, like for me personally, that like strikes at the heart of my character <laughs> where like, I really don't want people to, to, to be waiting on me or to let down mm-hmm. people um, who, you know, who are part of the thing directly. Well, it's um, in terms of the the app. I mean, you have such a growing user base. It's 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 a responsibility, but it's also sort of revolutionizing um, the way um, your mission is going forward. So yeah, and and that's interesting because that actually is a whole part of the project that that I have mostly handed off, and I mostly um, am not the bottleneck on that. Really, um, Gabo, who is. Um, mm-hmm. Who is Venezuelan? Who is uh, has a long history in in crypto in a different way um, um, from Venezuela? You know, who came on and ended up uh, becoming the COO of the project and is the leader of um, of the whole Arpe tribe. Um, he's he's really the responsible party there, and um, you know, and 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 him and the whole Arpe team um, make that go every day um, mm-hmm. in a way where I'm not actually very involved anymore, which is which is really awesome. Um, and they're really they're really doing a fantastic job, much better than I could have done, honestly. So in terms of plans for the future, I know probably everyone asks you about the roadmap. I listened, like I mentioned, I listened to a community call that you had in May. Um, you mentioned that the focus, the main focus is growing the RPA user base. 
Can you share with us sort of your your general roadmap, or like you mentioned, the the launch of um, RSR? Um, what's what's coming soon? Yeah, totally. Um, so so yeah, I mean, you know, on on the app side of things, like I mentioned, the intention is to you know expand throughout the rest of Latin America and the United States uh, pretty soon, and then. Um, you know, aim to go global as quickly as we can. Don't really know how long um, mm -hmm. it will all end up taking. Sure. Um, and then, uh, but we're also on the app side, um, building out the product itself to be more and more fully featured. Um, you know, adding support for um, for a card uh, to be able to spend in like the ordinary, you know, uh, uh, transactional economy. Um, and then also adding various other features uh, to make it a, 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 you know, not just a simple, you know, sort of one trick financial app, but like a more fully featured platform. Um, on the protocol side of things, um, you know, with the launch of the full protocol coming up pretty soon here, um, at, at that point, we'll be focused on educating the crypto community about, you know, sort of the R token standard about um, about the fact that now you can create these uh, basket-backed stable coins and, you know, providing direct support to anyone who wants to do so in terms of answering their questions and educating them on how it works. And then also, you know, if R tokens get created that we think makes sense and that uh, the market shows an interest in, uh, which I hope will happen, but we won't know until it happens. Um, if that happens, then we will put effort into promoting them to getting them Mm -hmm. listed on exchanges and, and helping, um, you know, helping get the word out. And the ones that we think are actually, um, you know, if there's an R token that we think is like really safe and uh, provides a really good value proposition to its users, then we would want to integrate that into our app itself. Um, but we don't intend to actually create any R tokens ourselves, which is mm -hmm. a little bit, um, a little bit funny, but like basically we're taking the approach of building the platform and, you know, uh, releasing the software and then allowing others to actually create the R tokens. Um, just a quick, quick question. We talk about your, your basket. Does your governance have sort of a fund manager or, or this is, that's how I would, I would see it for, for choosing the stable coin, like for RSV, for example, that basket formula or for your planned basket of assets approach down the line? Like who, who does that? How, how does that work? Yeah. So today, um, RSV is governed by the core team. Like we just have a multi-sig. So there's not, nothing very interesting about that. Mm -hmm. um, the default decentralized governance mechanism that the protocol will support kind of out of the box for people who want to use it at the beginning is very similar to what like compound finance uses with like one token, one vote, very democratic. Mm -hmm. um, and that uh, the twist there is that your your one token, one vote is not all RSR holders. It's only RSR stakers on that particular R token. So if you staked, then you also can participate in the governance of that R token. But um, we really don't think that that is the right paradigm of governance in the long term uh, for, for decentralized governing. Uh, we think that there are issues with one token, one vote, where basically as the token holders become more and more dispersed, um, you could you could just end up getting a lack of proactive governance, but you could also end up getting uh, potentially um, attacks uh, where if everybody's anonymous, um, you could potentially cause uh, the the governors to collude um, to find ways of you know devaluing the R token and stealing the collateral and. Um, I think that in the short term, I'm not too concerned about that because I think a lot of the RSR holders are not only financially motivated, they're also ideologically motivated mm -hmm. and their reputations are tied um, to their behavior. Um, but 
once you have, you know, again, once you have a fully anonymous dispersed token holding population, I think that some of those forces um, change in a fundamental way. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, so we actually are, are, you know, we'll be directly executing and through grants uh, funding decentralized governance research because we think that's kind of one of the two main huge hairy problems that has to be solved for a long-term vision to work. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, one is is getting decentralized governance right, and the other is kind of the tokenization of all existing financial assets. Right. Um, so yeah, so that's in terms of roadmap um, in the, in the near term. Other than promoting uh, our tokens that look promising in the short term, we'll be putting a lot of effort into uh, governance research in order to support that that long term objective. Wow. Well, thank you. This was amazing. Um, I guess b- before I sort of ask you about closing thoughts, is there anything that I haven't asked that you'd like to share? I mean, that we've we've covered, sort of jumped around a bit, tried not to be repetitive, things that you've <laughs> already said in other podcasts, just to provide more knowledge. Um, so is there anything else that maybe I haven't asked that you'd like to? I, I think we I think we covered, covered a lot of ground here. I sort of um, jumped, I jumped. The- you know, one one interesting uh, side note is um, mm-hmm. in response to the UST collapse, um, mm-hmm. uh, I've been interested in trying to catalyze some sort of stablecoin rating agency or like rating website of some type, um, mm-hmm. kind of like a coin market cap for stablecoins that helps people understand them. And that could actually relate to like that regulatory plan where it, mm-hmm. if you did have like a, a solid independent body uh, that was doing kind of ratings, then it could actually end up being referred to by regulators as like uh, is like the, the thing that exchanges have to disclose. So I just bring it up as a quick plug, because if there's anyone who's listening all the way through and finds all this fascinating, um, mm-hmm. I am currently seeking people who are interested in working on that. And you wouldn't be working for reserve if you did that, because that can't really be a reserve project. It has to be independent. Um, but we're interested in putting some funding behind it to get it off the ground and then helping it become, you know, independent financially. Um, and so, you know, seeking people who um, are the kind of geeks that, you know, like to read all about stable coins and try to figure out which ones make sense and don't and why. Um, and, uh, but, you know, also people who um, are interested in like marketing and communications um, or, you know, uh, sort of the administrative and, and, and sort of project work that would go into making something like that a success. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're interested in, in talking to people about that right now. So that's the thing. Well, that's that. awesome. So in terms of information on where to follow your work or, or what's the best way to get in touch if, if, um, um, yeah, I mean, if somebody's interested in, in in getting in touch, I would say just you know DM me on Twitter, um, and 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 we can have a conversation about it. Um, and you know, if we do manage to get something like this off the ground, I'll definitely be talking about it on Twitter um, at the, in the early days. Well, awesome. Um, on that note, thank you, Nevin, so much for speaking with us today. Um, well, me, um, given the growing and some negative pains of the crypto market right now and (laughs) in general, as well as the global picture. um, It's really relieving to hear that there's a solid and ethical team trying to drive the safe and like you actually, I actually have to quote you a little bit and steal this from you, safe, sustainable and stable currency human right um, phenomenon going forward. We will definitely continue to follow your work and I'm a fan (laughs) and We'll be able to invite you back at some later point if you're not too busy. And so I wish you good luck, all the best, and keep doing what you're doing and also the way you're doing it so cautiously and transparently. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really, I really appreciate you, ha- you having me here to, to discuss. Thanks, Nevin. 
Thanks again to our guest, as well as thank you everyone for listening. Thank you also to the Baria Music team for providing their music. You can check out their latest album on bariamusic.com. You can find all supporting information on our website, blockchainrecorded.com, and listen to us on Google, Apple, and Amazon Podcasts, as well as Spotify, Radio Public, and Stitcher. Stay healthy and tuned for our next episode. Thank you.